1: Where we interview three big geopolitical experts on one subject shaping the news both here and overseas. And I'm your host, Michael Hilliard. This week's story begins in 2018, and I just got off a flight from Kiev to Minsk, the capital of Belarus. And getting off in Minsk, you immediately notice it's nothing like any of the European nations are surrounded. The signs are in Russian, the people speak Russian and even the flight between Minsk and Moscow is viewed as domestic. It felt like I'd got off the plane in a city like Smolensk or Volgograd. But travelling away from the airport was a beautiful city, a fantastic blend of Central Europe and the East. But one thing unmistakable about it was the mood in the air, the political stagnation that comes from one man ruling the country since 1994. That man is Alexander Lukashenko, often regarded as Europe's last dictator. Belarusian opposition at this point had all but been eliminated, all either arrested or exiled from the country. But unlike some of the younger people you'd see in the rural Russian cities, the youth of Belarus seemed to have a pretty good idea on what was going on. I sat in many bars across the city and met with quite a few young Belarusians, many of whom regularly traveled to Lithuania to go shopping, or Poland to go clubbing, or worked in UK IT firms. But when the subject of politics came up, there was one phrase that just kept coming up. When I asked how they felt about Lukashenko's rule since 1994, a universal response always came up. And the response was well, it is what it is. A surrender to a stagnant situation that comes with a multi decade dictatorship. I left that city with low expectations of anything changing. But only 18 months later, the country went for a major election. One where the people felt that it might be a change in the wind. Some polls even showed opposition leader Svetlana Tikhanovskaya in front of the polls. But, as we see too often in this part of the world, results were fudged, and the levers of government were used to keep Alexander Lukashenko in for another five years. It was a disappointing result for the Belarusian opposition. Did we just see the next Maidan or Rose revolution crushed? Was that the one window for Belarus to change the course in the country? Or was it just the first open one we've seen? Well this week we take a look at Belarus, what is at stake, and what Putin's plans are for the all-important buffer state. And to take us through all this, we turn to our first guest.
2: Part 1 – It is what it is Hey there, I'm Dylan Lewis, one of the hosts of Motley Fool Money. Each weekday on Motley Fool Money, we talk through the business news you need to know and the stories moving stocks on Wall Street. On weekends, we dive into the industries shaping tomorrow and host the experts, authors, and executives that understand them. Tune in for insights, a long-term perspective on investing, and of course, stock ideas, plenty of them. To quote a listener, it pays to listen. Check us out and subscribe wherever you listen to podcasts.
3: Belarus is, I would think, would end up being a surprise for most people um, who aren't familiar with it when they, you know, if they have the chance to read about it, or especially if they have the chance to visit it as part of the former Soviet Union, you know, it was it was very high developed, highly developed economically and culturally, and sports things like a, uh, you know, just a, a terrific uh, theater of ballet and opera, um, and uh, you know, in, in in the time since Belarus has been independent, uh, even though circumstances have been difficult and challenging, they developed. Uh, a very interesting uh, media environment, uh, you know, very well-informed journalists uh, who continue to report and do important work under difficult and trying
1: circumstances. Scott Rowland is the former U.S. Ambassador to Belarus, as well as the Assistant Public Affairs Officer in the U.S. Embassy in Baku. He has been a very senior member of the U.S. State Department for years, specializing in the former Soviet Union countries. He joins us today.
3: The scramble for Russia as the Soviet Union fell apart was to try to maintain relationships as best they could with the you know former constituent republics. Now, in the case of the Baltics, that just was that was never going to happen. Um, they were well and truly independent. There was no going back for them. Um, I think they've had more success with um, you know, most of the other former republics, uh, Belarus being one of them. Um, Lukashenko, who came to power in 94, always understood, you know, that he, he had a legacy. Belarus had a legacy as a, a former Soviet republic. He played on that and it was part of his successful pitch to win the first, first and only free and fair presidential election, which was held in Belarus in 1994. And, and to kind of appeal to the Belarusian electorate in all subsequent elections. Um, none of which were found to be free and fair by the OSCE or by its arm, ODIER, um, the Office of Democratic Institutions and Human Rights that does the election observations uh, throughout Europe. But, um, you know, that, that's been part of his legacy. In spite of the fact those elections were not considered to be free and fair, all the presidential elections that were held since 94, it would be a mistake to for anybody to say, Lukashenko was not a popular figure. Lukashenko, I think in several of those elections, if they had been free and fair, he may well have still won the election. It wouldn't have been by the margins that were proclaimed in each of those elections. But up until 2020, um, you know, he certainly was a figure who
1: enjoyed considerable popularity. Well, let's start this piece talking about the man himself, Alexander Lukashenko, president since 1994, What can you tell us about the man who is so often dubbed Europe's last dictator?
3: Well, I was lucky. I I had the uh, chance to meet him three times during the time I worked in Minsk uh, from 14 to 16. Uh, The first two times as, uh, you know, more or less a a note taker or accompanying, you know, high level US visitors. Uh, And the final time I was actually given uh, an audience uh, before I left Belarus Uh, And and Belarus's relations, uh, you you asked about Russia initially, Uh, Belarus's relations with Russia and the US and the EU and other important foreign players have waxed and waned over the years. And it's been, I kind of look at his tenure as a tightrope act. And he's been up on this tightrope. He's been uncannily successful in surviving up until 2020. Now, he's still there. But I, I would argue, looking at what happened in 2020, that that was a moment where the, uh, the Balancing Act may be nearing an end. I'm not sure uh, he's going to be able to swing back and enjoy the kind of relations he had with the EU and the U.S. up, and, up until 2020. Um, and, and the same goes now, he's, he's clearly staking his bet here in this game on Russia, and that's why Russia is an important player. Russia Russia has always been the top trading partner for Belarus ever since independence. The relationship has waxed and
1: waned, but uh, nothing has been able to, to change that. Belarus has always had a very close relationship with Moscow. In fact, in the chaotic years at the end of the Soviet Union, there was talk of Russia and Belarus forming a union state. Can you take us through this pretty interesting concept?
3: Well, so you know, and this is one of these things uh, you know in politics and in life, be, you know, where people say, "Be careful what you wish for; you may get it." And, and in 1999, so when, when you, you you look at it now and you think the unions, how did they ever agree to this? Why would they want Russia to be in a position where they, at some point, potentially just gobble up Belarus and it becomes a just another oblast in in Russia? Um, but in 1999. Uh, you know, Russia, Russia, the 90s in Russia was a very difficult period. Um, And Boris Yeltsin, the president at the time, through, through the, you know, all those years in the 90s, um, things, things didn't appear to be going great. Uh, He almost lost re-election in 96. And, uh, you know, towards the end, there didn't seem to be a natural successor to Yeltsin in Russia. Well, this idea of hey, what about the Union State of Belarus and 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 uh, Russia? And uh, I'm, I'm sure this had to be driving Lukashenko's thinking at the time. Well, you know, once once Yeltsin moves on, if we implement this Union State, I I'm the person that people know best in that that area. I could become the next ruler of the Union State, and most importantly, it would be Russia, right? Belarus would would become part of this larger union state entity. But then all of a sudden, Lukashenko has vaulted from being the leader of Belarus to the leader of the much bigger, more important union state of Russia and Belarus. Uh, but of course, it didn't work out like that. Uh, you know, It, it just, uh, this new unknown leader came uh, onto the scene in 2000 and changed things completely. And I think, uh, Some of the back and forth since 2000 has been Lukashenko trying to adjust to the new reality that uh, Putin presented him, Belarus, and the rest of of the world uh, with his leadership and the way he's changed Russia.
1: Having worked with these people over the years, how would you summarize the personal relationship between Lukashenko and Putin?
3: You know, it's funny how they they work really hard on the optics. Um, There's always the hockey game when they get together, if they're anywhere near ice. Um, you know, in the photo ops, um, you know, on the Black Sea or or other places, uh, all very, very carefully staged. I, I think when they do get together, they try to present a united front. Um, gosh, in uh, 2014, there was a, a, a big celebration of Belarusian Independence Day and Putin flew into Minsk for that. I, I was on hand and was able to see the two of them. At a public ceremony for uh, Belarusian Independence Day in 2014. Um, y- that's important. I mean, be- Belarus, you know, um, when push comes to shove, uh, Belarus has tended to, uh, Lukashenko has tended to say the right things and do the right things and, and be there as a loyal partner of Russia. But that being said, there have been other moments um, when he's wanted to demonstrate some independence where he's been that, that nasty thorn in the side and uh, hasn't necessarily always come through the way you would like, uh, you know, a, a loyal ally to come through for you.
1: It is a bit of a tightrope here. Lukashenko will support Putin in issues like rounding up anti-Russia journalists, but at the same time, he won't cave when Putin asks him to recognize the annexation of Crimea or the independence of South Ossetia and Abkhazia. Is Lukashenko trying to play both sides here?
3: Maidan. Uh, it was that happened right before I started working in Belarus. Boy, did that change things. Um, uh, I, I think for Lukashenko, that had to be a holy crap moment where he, he looks at what's happening in Ukraine and thinks, wow, uh, you know, if I don't watch it, I could be next. And, um, you know, and, and uh, so a lot of the conversations that, that were held at high levels between the West and Belarus after Maidan, we're all about preserving Belarusian sovereignty. It was this recalculation after Maidan that, wow, you know, if if this could happen to Ukraine, I could be next, and Belarus would not have Ukraine's ability to be able to stand up and defend itself that uh, that Ukraine has had.
1: And for context, Maidan being the 2014 revolution in Ukraine that threw out the government in Kiev. In the last few years, Belarus has been starting to undergo a process of de rusification trying to diversify their trading partners, bringing back the Belarusian language, and teaching Belarusian history in school, rather than just the importance of the Soviet Union. What was Lukashenko trying to achieve through this process?
3: I, I would go back to Maidan, and I would, I would say that, um, you know, uh, it was interesting because in 2014, uh, during that Independence Day celebration, I talked about. On the one hand, Putin comes and he and, and Lukashenko celebrate Belarusian independence together. On the other hand, earlier in the day, Lukashenko gives a speech. The diplomatic corps was, you know, invited to attend along with. You know, they filled their, their, uh, you know, the theater where the uh, speech was being held, uh, a, a longish one, as is often the case with Lukashenko. And he delivered the first part of it in Belarusian, which was the first time anybody could remember hearing him deliver a speech in Belarusian. So that was a a clear statement as well. There clearly was a a lot of uh, chatter after that speech about, wow, what did that all mean? Um, And I can tell you that it functions at the uh, Ministry of Foreign Affairs. Uh, Quite often, the foreign minister and the, the various deputy foreign ministers would kick off different presentations by speaking in Belarusian. Um, so th- again, this was a kind of maintaining Belarusian sovereignty became an important uh, goal that, that Belarus, the government of Belarus was pursuing in those years after Maidan in 2014 for quite a long time.
1: On this program, we've talked quite a bit about the breakaway states that surround Russia ethnic Russian enclaves in countries that feel closer to Russia than their home country. These would be like South Ossetia in Georgia, Crimea in Ukraine, or Transnistria in Moldova. But does Belarus have a Russian exclave like these that could be exploited the same way Crimea was?
3: I I don't believe so. Um, So in fact, one of the interesting things I saw come up uh, during the time I worked in Belarus was... uh, you know, you see all kinds of polling. Um, we, we, we worked with a couple of organizations that did, did terrific polling there. But one of the things they did was they, uh, it, a question was, you know, they through a variety of questions, they looked at what areas of Belarus are most influenced by Russian propaganda? And so the interesting thing was the answer was completely different than almost anybody expected. It wasn't Magaliev, which is on the border, uh, it was the opposite, it was, it was the West, because uh, Russian propaganda, Russian TV, paint this very rosy picture of what everything is like in Russia. And if you don't live near the border, it's pretty easy to believe. Uh, you know, Russian TV is pretty slick. I mean, far better than those of us who, you know, um, grew up uh, in, the, in the days of the Soviet Union. Um, I mean, it was completely different, very, very slick, very effective. But if you live in Magalev, or in Vitebsk or other areas along the border with Russia, and, and again, it's a, it's a relatively open border, as you as you noted. Um, there there is no um, you know there are no uh, stations along the border where you have to stop and show a, a document, but but people from Belarus can travel easily into Russia, and uh, when they do, they can see the awful roads. They can they can go to uh, you know s- small cities and towns along the border and and see that uh, you know. It's not glitzy like the things you see on, on Russian TV. Life is actually harder for Russians living along the border than it is for Belarusians living along the border. Uh, there, there certainly are uh, uh, elements of the population that feel an affinity for Russia, um, but I wouldn't describe any exclaves uh, or,
1: or areas within Belarus that would be easy for the Russians to to win over. When you speak to the younger generations in Belarus, Many of them frequently travel into Lithuania or Poland to do their shopping or go clubbing or simply just to hang out. This younger generation has quite friendly ties with the neighboring EU states. Do you think this next generation of Belarusians will be much more pro-West than the generation that lived through the era of the Belarusian Soviet Socialist Republic?
3: Yes, I think it does. I'm I'm glad you mentioned that because... uh, Uh, while I was working in Belarus, my wife worked in Lithuania, so the two of us went back and forth a lot. And uh, one of the things you would notice at that time, and I I think it stayed uh, certainly up through the protests and and, uh, the election and then the protests in 2020, um, Belarusians travel a lot. The Belarusian standard of living um, in the former Soviet space, again, leave the Baltic republics out. They they, they were very different from the get-go, took a totally different path. But, But if you take them out... Then Belarus was one of the better success stories, uh, j- just looked strictly in terms of guaranteeing workers a job and, and guaranteeing them um, a salary that would allow them to have, a you know, in that space, a fairly high standard of living and the, the ability to travel freely. So the phenomenon you, you quote, I mean, it, it was very common if you uh, were in Vilnius, the capital of Lithuania. Any given weekend, um, you know, from 2014 onward, uh, you know, you go to some of the big malls in Vilnius, you would, on a, a lot of weekend days, see more cars with Belarusian plates than you would see Lithuanian cars. This went on and on for years and years, and and you can you can certainly make an argument that 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 was one very important factor in 2020 was that you, you finally had a generation of, of young Belarusians that had grown up living like this and with the ex- expectation that, hey, you know, this stuff we're used to over the border in Lithuania, Latvia, Poland, um, this is kind of what we're expecting at home now, too. We, you know, uh, we ex- for, for, at the very least, we expect free and fair elections. We don't expect the candidates running against the president to be arrested and thrown in jail. And, um, you know, that, that may finally have tipped to a place where you won't get it back again.
1: On my most recent trip to Minsk, I was sitting in bars and talking with young people about the state of politics in Belarus and the phrase I heard from more locals than any other was, well, it is what it is. How accurate do you think that statement is to Belarusian politics?
3: Well, I, you know, it, it would be hard not to be apathetic up through 2020, I think. And I think the thing about 2020 is that it, it just it, it was so unexpected. And then it really energized people. It's like, you know, wow, look what happens if we all decide we've had enough and take to the streets. Um, but the conditions, uh, it's why I think the work that the West did in Belarus was so important um, you know, kind of keeping doors open for the Belarusian opposition politicians. Wow, what a, what a difficult you know, task that was for these people to just constantly be under pressure, to constantly be marginalized for Belarusian uh, journalists. And like I said, uh, you know, Lukashenko basically, the autocrats playbook is you control broadcast media. It's true in Belarus. It's uh, where only Russian and Belarusian state TV are shown. It's true in Russia. Uh, it's true in far too many other places, Azerbaijan, another one, where they, 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 they're they really afraid of that. There, there is no independent journalism really to speak of in broadcast media, but uh, and especially in television. Print media is a different thing. And then online media was something that I think, um, you know, I, I, on the one hand, I, I think to have a successful modern information society, you have to allow a certain amount of freedom. Uh I don't think the autocrats had figured out how to completely control that, and they, they don't. Um, so you had outlets like Tutbay in um, Belarus that uh, you know started as a basically an internet portal, kind of like Yahoo, but developed a new service like Yahoo. But that new service in Belarus became extremely important because unlike Yahoo, it was one of the few places you could get good online, unbiased uh, information that wasn't tainted and controlled
1: by the state. Do you think these apathetic young people are correct? Will they have Lukashenko in power until he dies?
3: Uh, that That's one of the ways you get change. Um, you know, it. I, I would hope that we're not going to have to wait that long. Um, uh, I've been impressed at how long, um, you know, the opposition forces have been able to keep up their... Their protests, their engagement at how successfully, um, you know, Svetlana has been able to engage foreign leaders, including our president, Joe Biden. Uh, sh- she's met over the past year since uh, the election with over 30 heads of state. Lukashenko, at the same time has met with four, mostly with Putin. Um, it, it, it's quite an interesting contrast. Um, you know, there's some very, very good people working uh, to support her in this effort. And, uh, you know, the Belarusian uh, Lukashenko in the past was able to successfully kind of pit one part of the Belarusian opposition against the other. There was a lot of internal squabbling um, and you just haven't really seen that this time. So um, again, I also, I also think that the back and forth, back and forth between uh, Russia and the West, I, I'm not sure there's a West for Lukashenko to go back to at this point. Um, you know, the U.S. Uh, under President Biden and under Congress has introduced new sanctions, this time including Belarus Kali, uh, which was able to kind of slide by the last time. You know, exports of potash are very important for Belarus. And uh, the U.S. introduced new sanctions. It sounds like uh, both sides may be considering even further sanctions. I, I, I don't see that there's a going back to a, p- a place where we say, oh, you know, let's forgive and forget. Um, this time, Lukashenko is really going to live up to his promises. Um, I, I, I think at this point, the effort in the West is going to be to allow free and fair elections to take place. And under free and fair elections, I don't think there's a future for, for Lukashenko and Belarus.
2: Want to learn how you can make smarter decisions with your money? Well, I've got the podcast for you.
1: 2020 saw the biggest protests in the Belarusian Republic's history. These streets were full of people waving the white and red flags and calling for an end to the man who had been in power for many of the protesters' entire lives. But now we're just over a year on from the protests, and Lukashenko still holds the presidency in Belarus, whilst the opposition leaders have been forced to flee the country. And rather than Lukashenko just being a dictator, now he's a scared dictator, knowing that any loss of power here may lead to him having to face trial for his various crimes and corruptions. So he has to run to the only man in town who will support him to stay in power, Russian President Vladimir Putin. But what price is he willing to pay for that protection? And is Putin still keen on having Lukashenko now that it is a greatly weakened mandate over the Belarusian people? Has Lukashenko fallen off the tightrope? Well, to answer that, we turn to our second guest.
2: Part 2 the little brother.
4: So Belarus is as if the Soviet Union was suspended in the 1970s, early 80s. Since its independence in 1991, it's been led by Alexander Lukashenko, the president, the last dictator in Europe, uh, as he is called. Uh, It is a state-controlled, repressive an extremely repressive uh, leadership, Um, and in fact, uh, it still has a KGB. It never renamed it. So in some ways, it is a throwback of the Soviet era.
1: Heather Conley is the Senior Vice President and Director for the European, Eurasian, and Arctic programs at the Center for Strategic and International Studies. She was also the Deputy Assistant Secretary of State in the Bureau for European and Eurasian Affairs for the U.S., And chairman of the board of the American Red Cross. She joins us today.
4: They have basically been working on uh, more fully integrating Belarus into the Russian Federation. Uh, Now, it's not been completely flawless, uh, but over, particularly over the last several years, there's been greater concentration of military integration. There's uh, great economic integration because Russia supplies upwards of 90% of Belarus's uh, energy, uh, natural gas in in particular. Um, So this, in some ways, this federated uh, approach has been something that uh, Moscow and Minsk have been working on. Uh, The question is, how eventually will they formalize it? Will this in fact uh, become, Belarus will be fully integrated uh, into Russia? So far, they're being kept apart, uh, but um, I think uh, President Lukashenko is now no longer resisting more fulsome integration. And we, we may see a, a, a political entity uh, of, of one, Belarus fully integrates into Russia.
1: Well, can you take us through some of the military integration between the Belarusian and the Russian governments?
4: The Belarusian military have been exercising uh, with Russia uh, for, for many, many years. In fact, uh, right now we are about to witness the most recent um, uh, exercising opportunity in Zapad 2021, which is uh, a, a exercise of the Russian Western military district every every four years. Uh, Russia holds an, uh, an annual exercise for its four, now five, military districts. Um, and Be- the Belarusian military has basically been seamlessly integrated into Russia's military. Belarusian officers are formally trained uh, in Russia. There are now upwards, uh, as, of, as of a recent announcement, at least three training centers, a Russian uh, military training centers within Belarus. So what you've been basically seeing is a slow integration of Belarus uh, as an as a element of Russia's Western military district. And this poses certainly a more unique challenge to NATO um, uh, because, of course, Belarus uh, borders, uh, Poland and and Lithuania. So uh, all we've seen is a slow incorporation of Belarus's military into the Russian military.
1: I want to go back a little bit first to talk about the relationship between Minsk and Moscow, which has always been fairly close. But one of the first worrying signs for Minsk was the Russian invasion of Georgia in 2008. How was Russia pushing into a neighboring former Soviet state viewed by Minsk?
4: So, uh, both uh, Russia's invasion of Georgia in August of 2008 and then uh, jumping fast forwarding to the annexation of Crimea and Russia's military incursion into Donbass, both I think you could almost see the visible uh, paleness and drain of the face of Alexander Lukashenko because in some ways the the clear message that uh, both of those invasions and then uh, subsequent annexation uh, delivered was you cannot, you, the neighboring states to Russia, cannot get close to Europe or to the United States, so through the European Union or NATO. If you make the move towards going towards the West, we will invade you we will make sure that we can control your future and it was a wake-up call the challenge for Belarus um, and what Alexander Lukashenko thought he he was a unique master in doing, and quite frankly, he was pretty masterful in, in doing it until uh, things stopped on, on August the, the 9th of last year, he was able to play both sides off of each other. So Lukashenko would move closer to Moscow, particularly when it was time to renegotiate all those energy deals to get the economic uh, support and the military support that he wanted. and then when Moscow Moscow pressured him to accept uh, more uh, more integration. And he understood the more integration, the more he would lose his own control and power and and Belarusian sovereignty. Then he'd start shifting more towards Europe, uh, and he'd start asking Europe to support uh, Belarus. And then when Europe and the United States asked too much of Mr. Lukashenko on human rights and democracy, um, then he started shifting back to Moscow. And he would just go back and forth. gain from both sides that music stopped uh, August 9th of last year, and Lukashenko may had to for his own survival. There's no more back and forth here. He is now placing his fortunes with Moscow, and now Moscow is trying to decide how much it can gain in the short term, and then I think, eventually, uh, the Kremlin may decide that they don't need Mr. Lukashenko. The integration has been complete. They may create uh, a leader that uh, is not quite as as erratic as Alexander Lukashenko,
1: Putin will obviously want a leader in Minsk who is friendly to Moscow. But many of the younger people in Belarus have a much more pro-Western point of view. How do you think this will play out going forward?
4: Well, this is this is the the great question, and you're absolutely right. Uh, even well before uh, the the crackdown over the the failed August 9th election, you had basically a very vibrant element of of Belarus's civil society, some of its media outlets, its journalists, its young people studying in Lithuania. And this is not just confined to the young people of Belarus. You, uh, you know, look at surveys for Russian youngsters, and I believe the recent survey, you know, fifty-four percent would like to leave Russia. They see the opportunities in the West uh, to study, to have a vibrant uh, internet and discourse. Uh, so absolutely, and this is exactly why, um, in in many ways, uh, Belarus is becoming now a new buffer zone between. Russia and the West, Uh, you know, my forcing uh, the weaponization of migrants, forcing them across the border. What does that do? Well, that builds walls. That's exactly what the Kremlin and Minsk want. They want very high walls. So Belarusian and Russian citizens can't see over those walls, can't see the opportunities that they are losing, certainly their young people.
1: Well, can you take us through that pivotal election on August 9th, 2020, and why it stoked these huge protests throughout the country?
4: Alexander Lukashenko has always masterfully managed both his relations with Russia and the West, playing them off of the other, and he always had a pretty tried and true formula uh, when it was time to have a, an election, and we'll put that election sort of in quotes. It was always, again, managed democracy. Um, it was to make sure uh, that the results kept Mr. Lukashenko in power. So again, his his standard formula was if there were options. Opposition voices uh, before an election. They would be jailed. Um, they uh, would be perhaps pushed out of Belarus. They would be discounted, again, to, to reduce that opposition. But in the run up to August the 9th, a couple of things started to shift. Clearly, the pandemic did play a role here. And um, people really saw the incompetency uh, of the government. And uh, of course, Lukashenko himself, you know, not believing that. Uh, Coronavirus was real. Um, It had an impact. The economy, because of the lack of of diversification, of, of revitalization, had been struggling. And there was this moment of just frustration, of change. Uh, And of course that that was not uh, sought after. So the opposition leaders that began to actually get some momentum because of this unhappiness, Mr. Lukashenko did what he always did. He jailed the leaders of, of the opposition movement. What he didn't count on was their wives stepping into their place uh, and saying no, we're going to we're going to continue this uh, fight. And of course, that was embodied in now the the uh, opposition leader Svetlana Tikonsakaya. And 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 it, it's she's an amazing story. This is a mom who you know this is not what she wanted to do, but stepped into uh, her husband's shoes, who's uh, in jail, has been sentenced, and and just became this voice. And these these incredibly brave women stepped forward. And Lukashenko didn't know. How to deal with this, quite frankly, and he he thought he could uh, overcome it. Clearly, August 9th, he had to do an enormous amount of manipulation, which set off a frenzy of. of demonstrations that grew and grew. Um, it was uh, women-led. Um, it was an elder generation, which again, we talked about this youth versus the elderly. Usually, you know, the elderly don't want big change. They want that security. They want that stability. But we saw even older voices coming out and wanting a, a different future. Lukashenko's response to this was brutality uh, and uh, causing uh, incredible. Um, destruction, uh, death of, of these critical opposition leaders, uh, forcing then uh, these these brave women, either pushing them literally out of Belarus, which is what happened with Svetlana and, and others, or jailing them. And now they're on trial as well. You know, he's been successful with Russian help in suppressing these voices. Uh, but, um, you know, we're seeing where the West is Uh, upholding uh, Svetlana and the Belarusian opposition meetings in the White House, meeting in Brussels, uh, giving her support. Uh, But at the end of the day, this is going to have to be something that the Belarusian people uh, seek change uh, within their own country. We can only give them support, but they are going to have to do this themselves.
1: As much as there's quite a lot of protests in Minsk, there is a lot of support for Mr Lukashenko, in particularly some of the rural areas of Belarus. But are these rural areas enough for him to have won the election legitimately? Or did Mr. Lukashenko put his thumb on the scale, so to speak?
4: Well, he had his thumb on the scale uh, in jailing of opposition leaders, uh, preventing them from running, you know, when you basically have all the levers of power, you're not going to have a free and fair election. And even that didn't stop uh, a a transformative election, which is why uh, he had to so grossly manipulate it, which is what... you know, compelled uh, these massive demonstrations uh, last year, but because he so controls the, the main levers of power in these state-run enterprises, you know, it, 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 people were afraid uh, for their lives. Uh, the brutality, the beating of protesters, the death of protesters, um, and you know, the 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 real threat to livelihoods. We're able to suspend that momentum and that, uh, that energy. Uh, now, where do we go? And this is really the, the question you're asking. Now, again, uh, Lukashenko has suggested that maybe there'll be uh, changes to the Belarusian Constitution. Um, this is actually something that the Kremlin is seeking in part. They want to um, reduce some of Lukashenko's power and the power of the presidency, make that parliament a little bit more um, of a controlling element because Russia is now supporting pro-Kremlin political parties uh, that eventually if there is a next election, those pro-Russian parties uh, and a more powerful parliament will be able to control things from, from that standpoint. Again, I think that's um if there is a transition strategy strategy from the Kremlin to Mr. Lukashenko, it's that's the potential transition strategy there. So um, I, you know, Mr. Lukashenko has a lot of concerns He's, he's putting all of his uh, uh, eggs in the Kremlin's basket, uh, but I think the Kremlin eventually may have some different plans for him.
1: Well, to talk a little bit about the Belarusian opposition here, is Svetlana Tikhanovskaya pro-European? You know, if she were to take power, would we see Belarus leave the Russian orbit?
4: So this is, you know, for me the the extraordinary part of this, you know. Uh, Revolution of dignity. The Belarusian people don't want to be pro-West. Uh, in fact, all of the Belarusian opposition leaders—maybe there's one or two that have a, have a more pro-Western bent—they all have said that they they want to remain in a very friendly position uh, with Russia. This is this is not about Russia. It was about. Alexander Lukashenko and the leadership that he provided. The the problem with that is in Russia, there can be no choice. So in Belarus, there can be no political choice. And that's where, again, this never started as something to be against Russia and towards the West. It's just about The the opportunity for political choice, that is forbidden. So what's happening as Russia uh, continues to force uh, this integrative model and as Alexander Lukashenko recognizes that his his future totally now is relying on, on Russia's support, what's happening is now, as we're seeing in these demonstrations, what flag are they waving? They're waving the um the briefly lived independence flag of Belarus and the interwar period, they are now creating Belarusian nationalism. Uh, this is so similar to the patterns of Russia's behavior in Ukraine, where they singularly created, Ukrainian nationalism that's anti-Russian. We are seeing a similar pattern in Belarus. So, uh, you know, it didn't start out like this, but because of the political imperative to suppress choice and change, they are going to create the antibodies that didn't exist there at the very beginning.
1: At the height of the protests, it looked like the government may be overthrown in Minsk, much the same way Ukraine was in 2014. There was a lot of speculation amongst journalists that the Russians would be prepared to send troops and PMCs into Belarus to protect Lukashenko if required. How accurate do you think those speculations were?
4: So you could see from the very beginning as as the the crisis was unfolding across Belarus after August the 9th that the Kremlin wasn't exactly sure what they wanted here. And you could almost feel competing groups. Uh, one competing group, uh, clearly the ones that are the most nervous about the Duma elections that are about to take forward, wanted to um, to, to, to support Lukashenko, insert themselves and sort of suppress uh, these demonstrations because of the fear of contagion within Russia. There was another group I, I, that you could tell were very reluctant to do this because they know. Uh, look, there's no love lost in the Kremlin for for Lukashenko. He's driven him crazy um, for his entire 27 years. This this back and forth. Um, uh, it is Belarus is a drain on Russia, certainly economically, and the subsidies that they have to provide. Uh, maybe this was an opportunity, quite frankly, uh, to get rid of their troublesome priest, as it were, uh, and then to create a you know a, a candidate that would be much more docile. For for the Kremlin, Uh, but you so those two groups I think sort of competed a little bit to see how this was going to work. At the end of the day, they I think Moscow sort of stood back a little bit, uh, tried to see what they could get out of this uh, this opportunity that they didn't uh, foresee but wanted to make sure that there was a containment strategy. So they sort of did a little bit of all of the above. Um, they were pressuring Lukashenko to give them more things that they wanted that he was always hesitant in, in providing. But at the end of the day, they weren't going to let this get out of hand uh, because of its implications for Russia. So they did support, uh, you know, supporting the the Russian, uh, sorry, the Belarusian security forces and their their brutality. So now what we see are monthly meetings between President Lukashenko and and President Putin. Uh, Lukashenko is is absolutely fawning over Mr. Putin and thankful for uh, uh, all the Russian uh, uh, support that he is given. He exaggerates that Russian support, which he just did a few days ago. And, you know, Russia is going to send all this great Uh, military equipment to Belarus. The Kremlin had to correct that a little bit. So you're, you know, gaining the benefits of this, mitigating the risks, that is what a, uh, a power does when they are conserving strength they're trying to get all they can as cheaply as possible. Uh, and I think, again, the Kremlin's now beginning to understand that there are going to be economic costs to this, the sanctions policies that are, that are affecting uh, Belarusian companies. That will have implications for Russian companies that now support that. There is a cost here, um, and uh, the, the, the Kremlin's mindful of that as well.
1: Do you think Lukashenko's westward bridges have now been burnt? And he now has far less options open to him to go between. Have these protests forced him to run even further into the arms of Moscow?
4: Absolutely. And this is, again, his strategy has always been play one side off against the other, get the gains to to sustain his power. That's been the basic formula. August 9th upended that formula completely. He has now irre- irrevocably... Uh, now sided with Moscow. And again, Moscow knows that. That is their tactical advantage. So over time, they will continue to seek greater and greater concessions from Lukashenko and Belarus. Uh, And eventually, I think the ultimate concession will be a change in leadership, but they will control as much as one can control that change in leadership.
2: We all know how important it is to keep your eye on the money and not just your own. To follow trends, track financial situations, follow gains and losses, check out the Yahoo Finance podcast. Every day we'll give you a quick overview of the latest market and financial news that you need to know. You'll be able to hear about the biggest headlines in the business world in three minutes or less, right after markets close. It's perfect to listen to while you make another cup of coffee or work out a new budget. Check it out now. Listen to Yahoo Finance wherever you get your podcasts. That's Yahoo Finance wherever you get your podcasts.
1: So what is Moscow's overall plans for Belarus? Is it just a buffer state between them and the EU? Will it become the middleman like a Hong Kong to China? Will Belarus become the tip of the spear in any conflict with NATO? And what does the latest buildup of NATO forces in Poland, Lithuania say about the changing relationship between Europe and Belarus. Well, for that, we turn to our final guest.
2: Part three, the next Crimea.
0: Belarus is kind of in an interesting position. Um, you have uh, there, uh, Mr. Lukashenko, uh, who on the one hand needs a relationship with Russia. But you've seen over the past 25 years, he's tried to avoid getting too close to Russia, so there have been occasional outreaches to the West. Uh, He's not seeking to bring Belarus into NATO or into the European Union, but he does seem to recognize that having some relationship with the West allows him to have some balance vis-a-vis Russia and may even improve his position when he sits down to talk to Mr. Putin. The problem that he has is that the West has been very concerned uh, going back 20 years now, about the domestic repression in Belarus. And so the West has not been prepared to get too close to Belarus without some change on the part of, uh, by Mr. Lukashenko of his human rights and democracy practices. So that's sort of the situation that Belarus finds itself in.
1: Stephen Pfeiffer is a senior non-resident fellow for the Brookings Institute, specialising in Ukraine, Russia, and Belarus. He served as Deputy Assistant Secretary of State in the Bureau for European and Eurasian Affairs, he was the former U.S. ambassador to Ukraine and special assistant to the president. He was also the senior director for Russia, Ukraine, and Eurasian national security, and was on the delegation for the negotiation on intermediate-range nuclear missile negotiations. We are very happy to have Stephen back on the program today.
0: You know, that was one where uh, I don't think it was welcomed by the Belarusians, um, because again, or not by the but, but by Mr. Lukashenko, because all of a sudden he sees Russia moving against a neighbor, and using force. Uh, And I think that sent him a very strong message with regards to how the Kremlin is prepared to act in the post-Soviet space. Uh, So I I, I don't think uh, Lukashenko took uh, any joy in it. Uh, For a while, in fact, he held off uh, uh, recognizing, and I think Belarus still has not formally recognized Crimea's incorporation into Russia. Uh, And that's a tricky point for them. Uh, but, again, you then saw, after 2014, more attempts by Minsk to reach out and try to engage the West, again, to maintain some geopolitical balance between Russia and the West in their terms of their relationships. Uh, but, again, uh, the uh, reluctance of Lukashenko to improve the internal political situation, and, of course, it's been much worse over the past year with the stolen election And this new wave of domestic repression that you've seen inside Belarus, he's not had much interest in the part of the West in building a relationship with him. And so increasingly now, because of his own domestic policies, he's having to rely more and more on Russia and more and more on that link with
1: Russia. Tension towards Moscow greatly increased in Minsk after the invasion of Ukraine in 2014, with the majority ethnic Russian areas like Luhansk, Donetsk and Crimea being exploited to form breakaway republics. Which have greatly weakened Ukraine's position. Does Belarus have any of these same ethnic exclaves of Russians inside of it that Russia could exploit in the future? You,
0: you don't have a you don't have a geographical area in Belarus similar to Crimea. Crimea was pretty unique in Ukraine in that it was the only part of Ukraine in which ethnic Russians were a majority of the population, and always so there was this Russian attachment to uh, Crimea despite the fact that in 1991 and several times subsequently, Russia formally agreed that Crimea was a part of Ukraine. But you don't have that similar geological, uh, geographical situation in Belarus. And I actually believe that for Belarus, the concern for the Russians ought to be something very different, which is right now in Belarus, you, you don't have the opposition clamoring to join NATO or the European Union. What they want is more political space. They want more democratic rights. They want less repression from Lukashenko. And the risk to Moscow is to the extent that they are backing Lukashenko, they may take that opposition and get that opposition to begin to think that their only way to get to a better political space is if they draw closer to the West. They may push, the Russians may push Belarus away from Moscow by virtue of their support to Lukashenko. And and this is a a significant difference between the way the West looks at Ukraine and the way the West looks at uh, Belarus. And I go back to a conversation I had with Russians in 2003, where uh, the United States and the EU, uh, I had co-led a mission with EU counterparts counterparts to Minsk to try to persuade the Belarusians to ease up on repression. We did not succeed. But when I went to Moscow separately, I met with a senior Russian official. I said, look, can we work together on Belarus to try to build more political space for the people there? And I said, you, on Ukraine, I think we have geopolitical differences between the United States and Europe on the one hand and, and Russia on the other. We don't have those differences over Belarus. You know, the Belarusians I have to express no interest in joining NATO or in joining the European Union. The West is not trying to pull Belarus in, but can we work together on this democracy issue? And the Russians were basically, you know, we'll take care of our relations with Belarus. We don't need to work with the United States and the European Union. Um, And I would say even today, you don't see that interest on the part of Belarusians in trying to get into institutions such as NATO and the European Union. But to the extent that the Kremlin and Mr. Putin support Lukashenko, uh, you may see that interest grow because they may increasingly come to see Russia as an opponent uh, of their desires.
1: Belarus has been trying to reach out to faraway countries like China for extra trade ties. But how likely are these to really bear fruit for Minsk?
0: The Chinese basically you know, look at their interests first and foremost on an economic basis. And there's a question, can China make up for the kind of trade that he's now losing uh, with Europe? And that's still an open question.
1: Could Ukraine be the one to make up that trade shortfall then at the moment? Is Minsk able to form better relationships with Kiev in a hope to diversify their trade away from Russia?
0: Well, they've become progressively more difficult um, uh, because Ukraine has basically aligned itself on key questions with the European Union. Uh, uh, As the European Union has applied more restrictive measures against against uh, Belarus. Now, the Ukrainians haven't provided the full set of economic sanctions. uh, But for example, um, in June, when the European Union announced that they would no longer uh, allow Belarusian airliners to either fly to their country or fly to their airspace, Ukraine imposed a similar restriction. So uh, Belarusian airliners are now long, no longer allowed to fly through Ukrainian airspace. Uh, so you've seen this worsening of relations between Belarus and Ukraine, in uh, part because you know Ukraine is a democratic state. One has sympathy for what the opposition in, in Belarus is trying to do, but also because Ukraine has been coordinating
1: uh, its policy towards Belarus, in part with
0: the, the European
1: Union. What about if you we look westward? Poland has been putting up large military forces on the border with Belarus, but what do you think this means for relations between Warsaw and Minsk?
0: No, I I mean, you've seen both in Poland and in the Baltic states, but also throughout NATO since 2014, an effort to build up their military force and their defensive capabilities uh, driven by concern about Russia. I mean, Russia in 2014 showed a readiness to use military force to solve a political dispute when it seized Crimea, and then used military force uh, to provoke and sustain the conflict in Donbas. And so you've seen across the board now, I think virtually every NATO member has increased their defense spending, but it has been particularly true in Poland and the Baltic states, where um, they are basically bordering Russian territory. And here's where Belarus comes into play uh, geographically The the link between the land link between Poland and the Baltic states, the Suvalky corridor, it's a gap between, on the eastern side Belarusian territory, and on the western side Kaliningrad, which is a Russian exclave, and so there's been militarily an interest that in a crisis, you know, how would NATO maintain the ability to flow troops and equipment through that gap, between Belarus and and Kaliningrad if it had to. Take steps to reinforce its presence in the Baltic states. So there has been that buildup. You know, it's not been directed against Belarus. It's been clearly motivated by concern about what the Russians have done, you know, and Russian military buildups in the area. And, and this question is going to be: is how close does Belarus now get to Russian militarily? It, it's pretty clear that the Russians would like to increase their military presence in Belarus. Uh, and how close. Or does belarus now associate militarily with russia uh, in terms of uh, you know granting the, the russians the uh, rights to greater
1: military presence in belarus from the perspective of russian defense planners how important is belarus to russia's current defensive doctrine
0: the russian defense doctrine seems to be in many ways, as it was in the 20th century or even the 19th century, this desire for defense in depth. They want to have buffer states like Belarus between Russian territory and and the West. Uh, And I think it's it's an antiquated way of thinking about things when Russia has the world's largest nuclear arsenal. Uh, Defense in depth no longer has the same meaning for a country like Russia. Uh, as it had 150 years ago. Uh, But I'm not sure the Russian military thinks of that in those sorts of terms. So the the Russians do want to have uh, a a military presence in Belarus. They do want to keep Belarus militarily aligned with Russia. And, you know, Belarus is part of the uh, the Collective uh, Security Treaty Organization that Russia's tried to foster as uh, sort of their counterpart to NATO, though, you know, it's 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 a very different organization. Um, and, and again, I think from the point of military terms, the, if the Russians can't operate from Belarus, you know, it probably complicates their uh, problem of how they would reinforce um, reinforce uh, the exclave of Kaliningrad. Because Belarus would be the way, the shortest way to get there, crossing the Zavalka Gap. Of course, NATO would be trying very hard to keep that gap open for flowing NATO forces. Uh, but it's, it's a different geographical problem for the Russian military if they cannot operate out of Belarus.
1: Will the current arrangements between Russia and Belarus die with the ousting of Lukashenko? Or will we likely see a situation similar to Kazakhstan, where even if the leader does change, he'll just be replaced with someone who has very, very similar objectives to both Lukashenko and Moscow?
0: I think that's a, the, the big unknown is, um, you know, if Lukashenko were to get hit by a bus tomorrow, who would come in after him? Um, you know, I, 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 it, by some appearances, he looks to be trying to groom his son, uh, to be sort of the political heir, uh, you know, but but I, I'm not sure that we know. I mean, if Lukashenko goes away, does that then create an opportunity for the political opposition to move um, in a way that they've not been able to move over the past year uh, and, and maybe get somebody else into the uh, leadership position there? And, and again, that might create an opportunity for Moscow. You know, if, if Moscow's goal is to sort of keep Belarus close. And I would say that if you go back 30 years ago and look at the breakup of the Soviet Union, Belarus was probably the country that emerged from the wreckage of the Soviet Union that least knew what it was going to do with its independence and was probably the best disposed towards a good relationship with Russia. If you had a new leadership displacing, if Lukashenko were to pass and you had a new leadership in Minsk, there would still be an opportunity for Moscow to have a good, close relationship with Belarus, uh, but they would have to be prepared to accept uh, a Belarus that might have a more open political system. And again, I I think this is potentially a a strategic error that Moscow has made over the past year is by associating with Lukashenko. You know, they're, they're basically associating themselves with a repressive political structure, whereas there was an opportunity for them perhaps to throw their support to somebody else who would have been more acceptable to the population of Belarus, who would have opened up the political system, but still would have been a leader that was well disposed to Moscow and would not uh, start taking or trying to take Belarus in relationships uh, with NATO and the European Union
1: much of the russian gas lines that head to europe travel through belarus and the licenses belarus sells for these are a big part of the belarusian economy how important is the russian gas exports to the stability of this economy going forward
0: well i mean first of all belarus like uh ukraine and poland may well be uh a loser uh if if and when north stream 2 is completed and my guess is Nord stream 2 will be completed because Then you're going to have i I believe the russians will try to send more of its gas through the north stream pipelines and that would be less gas to go through either pipelines that pass through ukraine or that pass through belarus and and poland um so i think there is some economic uh, cost there for belarus you know but the russians seem to understand that if they want to keep belarus close and particularly if they want to keep lukashenko in power Uh, they're going to have to take steps uh, to make sure that the economy in Belarus does not become too difficult uh, because that just becomes one more complication and one more rallying point for the opposition. So uh, again, it appears that Russia and Belarus are on a track now where Belarus is going to have to rely more and more on economic support and subsidies from Russia. And Russia is going to find that uh, maintaining Belarus as uh, part of its uh, sphere of influence, is a more and more costly endeavour.
1: To get your analysis on the 2020 protests, there was a moment in the chaos where it did look like the protesters may turn towards the presidential areas and overthrow Lukashenko. Do you think Russia was scared of this happening? And do you think Russia would be willing to send in troops and PMCs to crush this if need be?
0: Yeah, I, I think, first of all, there would have been a very harsh uh, Uh, and forceful reaction and a bloody reaction by Belarusian security forces. Um, But I believe that that, uh, if it appeared that Lukashenko was going to go down as a result of uh, violent protests that the Russians probably would have intervened. And again, I think that would have been a mistake uh, because what they would have done is they would have taken a Belarusian population, which I believe is probably well disposed to Russia and Russians or has been in the past, But to the extent that they would use force against the Belarusian opposition, uh, it would only alienate a large segment of that population. In the same way that you look at Ukraine over the last seven years, nothing has done more to forge a stronger sense of national identity within Ukraine and also to increase hostility among Ukrainians towards Russia than the Kremlin's policies of the last seven years.
1: So if that had actually gone forward and the Russians and the Belarusians' security forces cracked down, it was a bloody affair in Minsk in those days, what would the West's response have been to this?
0: Yeah, my, my guess is that you would have seen uh, imposition of stronger Western sanctions on both Belarus, uh, the Belarusian government, but also on Russia for that. You know, I, I don't think you would have seen any direct involvement. I mean, there wouldn't have been... An effort by by NATO to assist the opposition uh, that would have been seen as, I think, too risky and too dangerous. But but certainly, I think there would have been uh, political criticism, but also backed up by uh, harsher economic measures that would have had an impact on the uh, Russian economy.
1: And what do you see in the future for Belarus over the next five to ten years?
0: Yeah, uh, you know, I, I I I think it's difficult to say. I mean, you know, one possibility is that the Lukashenko regime survives, that it uses the very extensive domestic security forces it has built up to suppress the opposition. And you you basically see Belarus as a continuing as an outright authoritarian dictatorship regime uh, with the support of the Russians, and, you know, and then having to be basically dependent on Moscow uh, to provide subsidies, cheaper energy, things to make up for the fact that uh, Belarus cannot export some of its uh, products to the West because they're under sanction. You know that's the grim future. Uh, you know the other future is you know does the opposition begin to take hold? Uh, and actually, is there some kind of reversal? You know, and, and we don't know. I mean, if you look at things like the Orange Revolution or the Maidan Revolution in Ukraine, or the Rose Revolution in Georgia back in 2003 or the Tulip Revolution in Kyrgyzstan in 2005, these things were not predicted. They just sort of happened because events came together in a particular way. Uh, So looking at over 10 to 15 years, uh, I'm not sure it's possible to make a confident prediction as to what Belarus is going to look like down the road.
1: Belarus has a number of major problems to fix. And I'm not talking about their habits to put corn on pizza or kilts in Irish pubs. Belarus needs to find a way back onto the tightrope, as having all your eggs in one basket makes each potential gust of wind devastating. If the borders of the West completely close, so with it will be the lifeline that keeps the younger generations happy. The access to the Western markets and the job opportunities for some of the highly educated middle class. People are much happier to live in a small apartment if they can at least open the windows. But what can the West offer the Belarusian economy as a whole? The majority of the Belarusian economy comes from Russia. Russia offers them defense, Russia offers them a large partner to go to bat for them when it suits Russia. And to Russia, Belarus is absolutely key to its defensive strategy. But is Lukashenko? Russia may be able to do what it wants without Lukashenko. But to Lukashenko, Putin is incredibly necessary. As with all the westward bridges now burnt, Lukashenko has to make himself useful to the Kremlin, as the Kremlin is the only game left in town now for him. A stark contrast, as there was once a point in time where Lukashenko may have been the leader of the Union State and ruled over a massive area that stretched from the Polish border to the Sea of Japan, but now the rule on even his own region is vastly diminished. And it's Putin who calls the shots over Minsk. Thank you so much for tuning into the show this week, as it's been another big month for the Red Line, with us starting to prepare additional live streams, new reports, and more expert analysis for you guys. In fact, we just released a big investigation into how Russia uses disinformation in Finland and the lessons Europe can learn from it. And if you want to check that out for yourself, you can find links to it on our Twitter, Reddit, Facebook, Instagram, Discord, and from next week, TikTok on the handle at the Red Line Pod. Or if you want to find me on Twitter, you can find me on the handle at Oz. More information is also available at our website, which is www.TheRedLinePodcast.com. As just a small token of our appreciation, we are also shouting out the Patreon who signed up most closely to the time of recording. So a big thanks goes out to Paul Gleason, who's our latest Patreon to sign up. This show would not be possible without support from our amazing Patreons like Paul, who donate a small amount of money each month to help us keep this show going. Our Patreons get to join in on games nights and live Q&As, and also get extra materials from the show. And our Patreon donations 100% go back into the program, helping us pay for staff, programs, hosting, websites, and lawyers that are essential for running a show like this. I cannot thank our current Patrons nearly enough for all their support, and if you feel like you can spare a couple of dollars a week, we would greatly appreciate it. So this episode about Belarus is dedicated to you, Paul. As usual, here are our three book recommendations if you want to take this subject further. The first is The Eagle and the Trident by Stephen Pfeiffer, on the US relationship with Ukraine and Eastern Europe. This book is an amazing look into how this area of the world works, and what to expect going forward over the next couple of decades. The second is Belarus. The Last European Dictatorship by Andrew Wilson, all about the political situation on the ground of the country. And the last is The Central and Eastern European Politics, From Communism to Democracy by Sharon L. Volchik, with the book focusing on the period since the fall of the Soviet Union to today. I want to thank our guests this week, Scott Rowland, Heather Conley, and Stephen Pfeiffer. All of you were absolutely amazing to work with, and we look forward to having you back on the show soon. I also want to give a big thanks to my staff, Owen Swift, the producer, Perry Grace and Daniela Zivella, research assistants and writers, Mark Spencer, our second voiceover artist, Joe Hawthorne, our audio cleaner, Marissa Rafter, our videographer, and Nick Munch, our field correspondent. All of you are absolutely amazing to work with, and I cannot thank each and every one of you enough for all of the work you put into the show. The last thanks goes out to you for tuning into the show. August was once again our biggest month yet and we've we'll been seeing a very solid upward trend in our statistics over the last few months, and that completely comes from people like yourself telling your friends and family about this show. That is 100% what makes the difference here, so thank you so much from the bottom of my heart for all of your support of the show. The show will be back in another fortnight with another international episode, in fact our two-year anniversary episode. But until then, thank you and good night.
2: The views and opinions expressed in this episode are solely those of Michael, our guests, and the Redline Podcast. They do not represent any government or organization and are solely our own. For more information, please visit theredlinepodcast.com. Want to learn how you can make smarter decisions with your money? Well, I've got the podcast for you. I'm Sean Piles, and I host NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast.